to start our week off right. You're gathered here with God's people to focus on who God is and what he has for us. So to that end, we make a practice of looking closely at God's word. I ask you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, and we're going to look closely at God's word. And remember that our expectation as we come to the text of God's word is that we're aiming to let God speak. His terms, what he says. And so I urge you to listen that way. Listen with a heart ready to accept what God says on his terms. And then also listen carefully to be sure that anything that I say is scriptural. And so you check and, and make sure that that's what's happening. And then when you discover that that's the case or whatever it is that you're learning, that you apply that to your understanding of God and to your walk in following Jesus. Well, let's pray and then we'll look at Acts 15. Father God, we come to you again in prayer because we are dependent on you. We're reminded this morning that as your word says that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so we come to you this morning listening to your word with open hearts and open hands. We're willing to, to work hard to study, to know what it is that you have to say, and then we, we, we trust in your Holy Spirit to help us apply the truth so that we will worship you rightly because we know who you are and we will follow you rightly because we see your path for us in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in Acts chapter 15 and the missionary success among the Gentiles now leads to a dispute within the Christian community because there are some Jewish believers who want to bring these new Gentile converts Christ, they want to bring them under the Mosaic law. Disagreement from within threatens the Christian community. How should the church at Antioch and various other local churches, how should the church at large be responding to this controversy? They will seek the collective wisdom and authority of the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem, and, and then when consensus is reached, they will disseminate the decision in a letter to the churches. As always, we the tw 21st century readers of the New Testament should be asking ourselves, what should we learn and implement from this model in Luke's theological history of the first century church? Paul and Barnabas find themselves right in the middle of this disagreement because they are the tip of the spear in spreading the gospel to the Gentile regions. Read with me in Acts chapter 15. We're going to look first at verses 1 through 6, and then we'll continue after we talk about those verses. Acts 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, 
describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers to keep talking about what God was doing among the Gentiles. In verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. The first question I want us to ask as we look here is, why is the disagreement consequential enough to defend urgently and to seek extra help? Why is this so consequential? Well, I'm going to tell you three things, and then we'll look at how they play out in the verses. Why is the disagreement consequential enough to defend urgently and to seek extra help? Number one, the gospel is at stake. It's no small matter to have clarity in answer to this question. What must someone do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? When you become a member in our church family, this is one of the first and, prim and primary questions our elders are asking you. Even when they ask you to share your testimony of faith, this is what they're really asking you. What must someone do to be saved? What have you done? How have you responded that you know you are saved? So the, first of all, the gospel is at stake. Secondly, the problem is systemic. The problem that they're dealing with appears to be Systemic. This discussion isn't limited to Syrian Antioch. The, the teachers causing the issue had come down, right, in elevation, Jerusalem's up high, had come down from Jerusalem. And during this season and on this same issue, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the churches in Galatia in order to say that justification is by faith alone and not by keeping the law. It's, this issue is spread all the way into Galatia, and it's not surprising that the Jewishness of the Christian faith is coming out and in ways that are complicated. What's the relationship between the old covenants and the new covenant? How, does, how, how are they uh, similar and dissimilar? And when they go up to Jerusalem here, they find similar voices saying the same thing. So the gospel is at stake, the problem is systemic, and thirdly, Christian unity is threatened. Unity depends on more than agreement over central truth, but not less. Unity depends on more than agreement over central truth, but not less. It's true that our attitudes and our actions must follow in the spirit and in the steps of Christ's own humble sacrifice. But as you look at that text from Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, what we call the Christ hymn, you notice that that having them having one mind being united in Christ they're having the attitudes and the actions of Jesus but it all centers around that single truth that Jesus Christ is the only way to be restored to God faith in Christ is what makes us one and where christian unity is threatened christ's mission is threatened tying back into the first of these three points the goal is gospel advance to new people, and the goal is gospel advance in the hearts of those people, that we should be maturing. That can't happen if we get central truth wrong and can't agree on it. 
So how do these dynamics play out in Acts 15, verses 1 through 6? Well, we find Paul and Barnabas. They're back in Antioch after their first missionary journey. We saw that they were resting and replenishing at the end of chapter 14, even as they are undoubtedly coming alongside to assist in ministry in this church, their sending church. But during this season, there are certain men who come down from Judea and cause no little disruption for the church by teaching that the Gentiles must convert to Jewish custom and law in order to be saved. They're teaching that they must convert to Jewish custom and law in order to be saved. What sounds kind of odd in verse 1 is more clear in verse 5. It sounds a little odd in verse 1 to say it uh, according to the custom of Moses, because we know that was circumcision was according to the Abrahamic covenant, but they also want them to submit to uh, the law. So it says in verse 5, when they're in Jerusalem, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Undoubtedly meaning not only the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, but also all other associated commands and customs. We beneficiaries of faith in Christ and students of the New Testament have come to know this type of influence and posture by terms like legalism, by terms like Pharisaism or being Pharisaical and calling such people Judaizers. Those are the terms that we use to reference this kind of teaching. So I suppose you could add to our list of of three things why this is so serious is the truth that they are trying to solidify impacts the entire church for generations to come. We're the recipients of the apostles and the elders making sure to get this right. It's also not surprising that those with a pharisaical background rose quickly in teaching influence in the church because they were those who who studied the law very carefully and followed it stringently. Having this foundational knowledge of the Old Testament and, of course, apparently sincere in their desire to, bo- to obey God, that could prove quite helpful in understanding the, the continuity between the previous covenants and the new covenant in Christ, even as it did for Saul, Paul. But it could also prove quite detrimental if it amounted to legalism, not emphasizing also the discontinuity between, new covenant, between the new covenant and the former covenants. For example, is, is anyone saved by the law? No. No one could keep it perfectly but Jesus. Only he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. Is anyone saved by simply being Jewish? No. Even the Jews knew that they had to be in right relationship with God. Again, only God the Son, Jesus Christ, could be the requisite Jewish Messiah and necessary mediator for mankind. Well, then, are there advantages to being Jewish and having the law? Some of you are hearing Paul talking in Romans. Are there advantages to being Jewish and having the law? Well, yeah. The unique covenant blessings of God and a unique relationship to him as his chosen people as a group throughout the ages, not to mention, therefore, the proximity to God's plan and his promises. Are there advantages to being a Jew? You bet. But... Do Gentiles have to become Jewish to now be grafted into God's people through his saving purposes? No. By grace through faith in Christ alone is anyone saved. In verse 11, we'll hear Peter say that it is 
true for Gentile and Jew alike in the new covenant, that we are saved by grace through faith alone. So I'll ask you something that we probably remind ourselves of frequently, or we should anyways, and remind our children of. Is growing up in a Christian family and in a Christian community, the church, a good thing? Yes! It's great! There are advantages. You have been hearing about wisdom from God your whole life. You have been hearing that you can only be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ your whole life. But your faith isn't in that. It's in Christ. Your faith isn't in being a part of the community. Your faith isn't in being in a Christian family. Your faith is in Christ alone. Is increased education and knowledge a good thing for any of us? Not just in the Bible, but in other ways. Yes. But be sure your faith isn't in trusting yourself, but in trusting God. Trusting Christ. What does Proverbs 3, 5 to 7 remind us of in teaching about wisdom? Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. God will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. The evil of trusting in yourself. So nothing less than the gospel is at stake. How people are rescued and restored to God. That's why this turns out to be, quote, no small conflict. And why Paul and Barnabas feel like it's necessary to debate, to dispute with them over this controversy. Since this is not an inconsequential disagreement and could have consequences and ripple effects for Christ's church everywhere, everywhere that they've seen conversions, this could be a problem. So the Antioch church, the church together, they send Paul and Barnabas and others up to Jerusalem to seek the clarity and authority of the apostles and the elders there. What a wise decision this turns out to be to create consensus for more than just their immediate context. Perhaps you, like me, can think of a time that you did not seek further outside counsel, can learn from, from that experience as well as this example. We might have had an easier time reaching consensus, you realize, in hindsight. Done a better job of keeping personal issues in check. Even prevented some heartache and struggle and conflict if we had found a way to seek further outside counsel. This is not an argument for a pope. Rather, it is an argument for getting further, count, further wise counsel when we don't seem to be making headway in the conversation as it presently stands. Even if we've made this mistake because we didn't think of doing so at the time, maybe the next time we'll seek outside counsel to help us reach consensus about what God's Word teaches and trying to use those principles in the specific situation that we face. The journey to Jerusalem then reinforces both enthusiasm for God's saving work, verses 3 and 4, among the Gentiles, as well as the pervasiveness of this dispute, which had already been percolating for some time. We see in verse 3, Paul and Barnabas keep telling of the conversion of the Gentiles everywhere that they, they pass along the way. 
and it brings great joy to the brothers and sisters who hear it. So too, they tell the Jerusalem church in verse 4 about all that God has been doing on their missionary journey and in Antioch, no doubt. This too would reinforce the salvation of the Gentiles. But the conflict is also reinforced in verse 5 because here, here in Jerusalem is undoubtedly the epicenter and the source of this Pharisaical movement to enforce Judaism on the Gentiles as a part of their means of salvation along with faith in Christ. So the stage is set for needing a council of the apostles and the elders to consider this matter in verse 6 in which they include Barnabas and Paul evidently according to verse 12. So that's why this is such a consequential issue, why Paul and Barnabas must take it so seriously, and why they seek outside help. As we continue looking at the verses, I've, I've put the question this way, what are the conclusive arguments in the debate or in the discussion? What are the conclusive arguments? I say it like that because the text says that after there had been much debate, verse 7, then Peter speaks, and then Paul and Barnabas again, and then James will speak a lot. Luke puts the emphasis not on the back and forth disagreement, but on the summarizing statements that serve as the conclusive arguments, especially those made by Peter and James. We have time this morning only to emphasize Peter's discourse, and then we'll consider James's discourse more fully in two weeks. I'm going to be out of town with my wife's family getting together in Philadelphia next week, so Dustin is going to uh, graciously preach uh, for you next Sunday. But in two weeks, we'll, I'll remind us of where we are, and, and then we'll continue. But read with me then, beginning in verse 7. We'll look at verses 7 through 12 of Acts 15. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And this is all a reference back to Acts chapter 10. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. The first of these conclusive arguments comes from Peter. Peter's experience of close ministry with Jesus and his authority as the leader of Christ's chosen apostles commands the respect and attention of the whole group when he stands to speak. So they listen. And this is how I would summarize the argument that Peter makes. Peter says, God has already spoken on this issue by saving Gentiles who believe the gospel and giving them the Holy Spirit. God has already spoken on this issue, so we dare not think that we know better than God and try to force them to bear the law. God is saving Gentile and Jew alike only by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Peter begins in verses 7 to 9, I have firsthand experience and you have firsthand knowledge because of all that already took place some years ago now that, listen to the way Peter says this. This is very interesting. He says, you know that God made a choice. God made a choice that I should speak the gospel to the Gentiles. And God proved the validity of their salvation through faith in Jesus by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. God is the one who made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. In other words, do Gentiles need to be, quote, clean by circumcision? Clearly, God has now made that a non-issue for being united with all who have faith in Christ. There's a good lesson for the Jew here. Neither circumcision nor keeping the law will make you clean either, but only faith in Christ Jesus to make you right with God. Peter continues in verse 10, Now therefore, why would we consider ourselves to know better than God and to try to place a yoke on them that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? The yoke was a common metaphor in Judaism for the law. There's an excellent footnote. Some of you have study Bibles. There's, a, there's an excellent footnote in the ESV study Bible that explains this well. This is what it says. By speaking of the law as an unbearable yoke, Peter was not denying that the law was God's gift to Israel. And in that sense, good. Rather, he was arguing that Israel was unable to fulfill it perfectly and that salvation could not be obtained through the law. And not to mention how much more extreme that burden had become under Pharisaical tradition and legalism. In his letter to the Galatians, people, or Paul, uh, in his letter to the Galatians, Paul would also speak of, of this idea of requiring Christians to keep the Old Testament law, and he would refer to it this way in Galatians 5:1: for, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. This is not freedom, back to the freedom part. He calls submitting to the law as a means of being right with God as a yoke of slavery. But when he speaks about this freedom, freedom in Christ, it's not a freedom of license to do whatever you want, but it's a freedom to life with God in Christ Jesus and to live for God in Christ. The law was good for Israel as a way to live in fellowship with him, but it was never meant to be the ultimate means of salvation. To the contrary, Paul explains also earlier in this letter, in, verse, in chapter 3, verses 23 to 26. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Maybe in this broader context we understand then better Christ's, I mean this broader biblical context, what we're looking at, and then also understanding Galatians. Maybe we get a better understanding of Christ's own reference to yoke when he says in Matthew chapter 11 verses 28 and 29, come to me all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says that he also has a yoke, but it's one of rest. Because he has already done what is needed. And so we serve alongside him, striving to be like him, but not burdened that we are trying to achieve righteousness before God. The law isn't bad. It can't be bad because it's from God. No, the law is good, but it is insufficient. Only faith in Christ can save. And if faith in Christ sets us free from the requirement of the law, then why burden yourself with trying to keep it? On the other hand, there's also a a perspective of the law, looking at it from a New Testament lens, that causes us to reflect on God's moral character and God's purposes that we do well not to ignore, but to admire, to emulate, to walk in by faith, the law of Christ. Back to the point that Peter is making in this council meeting, don't try to add the Old Testament law as a requirement for Gentiles to be saved, to be right with God, because God is plainly not requiring it. In fact, to burden people with any means of salvation other than faith in Christ is putting God to the test. If you think about how Israel had previously tested God, we're likely to remember, or we should, I'll I'll tell you now, consider how they, they complained or they disobeyed him due to a lack of trusting God. So they are testing God's goodness and patience, not by trusting that the way he is revealed is best. Thinking that there's something that we can do and must do. Putting God to the test by not taking him at his word, not trusting him. That's why verse 11 is so fantastic. Peter makes a statement that summarizes a clear doctrine about saving faith. But we believe, he says. Isn't this how we even word the beginning of some of our doctrinal statements we believe but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the lord jesus in the same way they are again peter makes peter says this in a way that it it's what his jewish brethren need to hear make sure you understand that we are saved in the same way they are not by works of the law but by grace through faith in jesus christ galatians 2 So to do our due diligence with the text of God's word, we must bring the principle from the first century to bear on our 21st century lives. So I have a couple of reflections for us about this part this morning. Right theology or right doctrine always matters. Right theology always matters. We need not pretend that theology is just some pie-in-the-sky lofty thing. Oh, you have your head in the clouds. No, right theology is always right down here where we live. All the time. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Right theology informs everything. It's become common in 
our world, especially in amongst Christians, to talk about how important a worldview is. I believe that's a right emphasis. We come to see that the things that we believe and hold deeply, what we understand about God shapes everything. All of the world, everything that we understand is shaped by our understanding of who God is and what his purposes are. But right theology only matters as much as you trust and obey the God of that right doctrine. Right theology is like becoming a surgeon who has the proper education and training, the right diagnosis and even the right tools. But none of that matters unless he actually performs surgeries. That's where the rubber meets the road, applying God's truth to our hearts. So also for us, as always, the heart is the heart of the matter. Your speech and your behavior flow from your heart, what you think and how you feel and how you live your life. The Jews, Peter says, were testing God because they weren't trusting that his way was best. Do you often reflect on the fact that your disobedience or your complaining and so on is due to a lack of of trusting that God knows best and that being right with him is what is absolutely best for us. We can obey God on his terms because we trust him. And nothing can replace knowing God, trusting God, and skillfully applying that to our lives. That's how we define wisdom. So what folly it is to know what God is saying but not to trust and obey him. So we've emphasized what Peter stands and says, and then also in the text we see, just I just want to mention briefly that from Paul and Barnabas, that there's, they, they make clear that, there's, that what they give is more evidence of God's saving work among the Gentiles and of his clear blessing in this ministry. Again here, the evidence speaks for itself. There's no question that this is from God and not from us. There can be no question that God is saving Gentiles without them becoming Jewish and observing the law. And as I said, in two weeks, we'll, we'll look at an, another conclusive argument which comes from the elder James, whom we believe to be the, the half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jerusalem church. From James and from the letter that's sent out by the group, we'll note the reinforcement of an uncompromising clarity on the gospel, but also behavioral compromise for the sake of fellowship. That'll give us an, another interesting point of discussion to apply. We'll see in verses 19 to 25 or answer this question, how does the decision and the dissemination work to bring both uncompromising clarity on the gospel but also behavioral compromise for the sake of fellowship? But for today, what are we seeing so far about handling conflict in the Christian community, handling disagreements in the Christian community? Here are a couple of concluding thoughts that I have for us this morning. Some disagreements matter a great deal more than others. Some disagreements matter a lot more than others. You kind of need to figure out about yourself whether you're, you tend to be a minimalist or a maximalist. By that I mean, a minimalist is a, is a person in the Christian community who often thinks, let's not bother differentiating between us 
Let's just, I'm just, I just want to be a minimalist. Like, we just, we agree about this and that's enough. Some of us tend to be like that. And so it's easy for us to be, well, in theory, unified. <laughs> and then there are those of us who tend to be maximalists. And we think that we have to, uh, that everything is of equal importance. Minimalists and maximalists. Well, well, we'll talk a little bit more in two weeks about maximalists. Maybe the, the, the emphasis for today would be on those of us who might be inclined to be minimalists. There are some dis disagreements that matter a great deal. I can think of two things. One is, how do you think that the Protestant Reformation came about from within the Catholic, the universal church, and then became eventually separated from the Roman Catholic Church? The goal was actually to try to reform from within, to just get back to what the Bible actually says. But the more that those two truths came in conflict from one, with one another, and it became evident that the one was different than the other, not faith plus works equals salvation. Know that when one, one is saved only by faith alone, and yes, that yields good works, but those are not the same thing. And so it ended up leading to a great division, and that division exists to this day. It matters a great deal. Or you might think of a, a more personal example closer to home. And I aim to say this to us with sensitivity, but... Before marriage, before you get married to someone, some of you may never be married, and that's great. In God's sovereignty, it may be that he has you being single, and that's great. But many of us will be married, and so there's, there's instruction from God's word to not be unequally yoked. Do you know what that means? Especially, don't marry an unbeliever. Because you don't view the, the world the same way in any way. And then, even I would even caution us, if you're, the difference in Christian maturity is great, you probably should not pursue that further. Now, is God's grace sufficient for us if you've, if you've already gotten married, right? And you find yourself in that type of a situation where your maturity level is different or, or one of you has become a believer and the other one is not a believer is God's grace sufficient for you? And is there biblical instruction about such things, even from the Apostle Peter? Yes, there is. But what we're saying is that some disagreements matter a lot. And then the final concluding thought that kind of goes along with this for us this morning is that we should continue to seek consensus according to God's word. Continue to seek consensus according to God's word. Again, you might think of marriage as an example. Now you're, you are married, and you know, when you're, if you're a married person, you know that you do not agree about everything. And sometimes you, you, you have to be wise enough in some situations to know, I'm just going to stop an argument simply by 
feeling and admitting it's okay if you're right. You can be right. Argument over. You can be right. But there are a great number of things that in, in marriage or in community, right, in working together, that we're seeking to be on the same page as much as we possibly can. How will we go forward in this? How will we parent our children? What should we do next? And so on. So we can continue to seek consensus as much as possible. Because God has designed for Christians to live in community, a plurality of Christ's people who make up his bride, what we believe in our attitudes and actions always impact the community. What we say and what we don't say, what we do and what we don't do, are building up and unifying the body or they are sowing discord and destruction. So we do our best to be on the same page and to follow the example of Christ in our attitudes and our actions. So we must continue to seek consensus according to God's word, especially as it pertains to central tenets of the Christian faith. There are a great deal more things that can be said about trying to reach agreement in the body of Christ, but hopefully looking more closely at this helps us to pursue consensus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you because you loved us first. You made us by your grace and for your own glory. You and your infinite wisdom made us beings who can choose whether or not we will obey you. And Father, we know from your word that because of Adam's sin, we are all born, already separated from you with hearts bent towards self-reliance and toward wickedness. And because of that, our end is destruction. God, we thank you for your perfect wisdom in sending Jesus to be the Jewish Messiah, in sending him to be the mediator of all who put their faith in him alone to be restored to you. We thank you that not only did the apostles and the elders of the early church stand on and defend this truth, but that there have been men and women who have defended that truth throughout the ages. And Lord, we pray that you will help us to defend that truth and, and even to do it graciously. Father, we pray for uh, all faiths that call themselves Christian, that they will, in fact, be corrected and bring themselves in, into obedience to this truth. We pray for people who maybe are in so-called churches that are deceived by something other than this gospel. We pray that you will bring the true gospel to bear on their hearts and their consciences, that they will submit in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that for each heart gathered here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. If you are here this morning and you're convicted that somehow you are trusting in your own work and not in Christ alone, we invite you to join us in repentance and faith 
in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and by his resurrection to be made right with God. And Christians, we're going to have disagreements with one another. So we do well to remember that God's grace is sufficient for us. God's grace is sufficient for others. Our faith is not in ourselves, but in Christ. And so we are willing to work together to try to reach consensus as much as possible. We also remember, as we go from here, that the world is going to disagree with us greatly <laughs> because we do not see things the same way. So don't be discouraged by that, but also remember the reason they disagree so much is that they need to see God through faith in Jesus Christ. And you have the privilege and responsibility of sharing Christ with them. Let's close again in prayer. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your truth revealed in your word and made manifest in God the Son coming in human form, the God-man Jesus Christ. Thank you that by your grace and for your own glory, you are making a people for your possession through faith in him. Thank you for the privilege and responsibility of being your children, being your servants, striving to be like Christ, yet not in our own strength, but abiding in him, trusting in him to work in us. Help us to submit to your spirit this week. In Christ's name, amen.